Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 595 with Adam Markell. Adam is sharing some pro tips on how to beat burnout and stay resilient. So you'll learn one, the most valuable skill for any professional, two, the massive costs of burnout culture, and three, quick recovery tactics to boost your resilience. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP595 to access those. And while you're hanging out at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some cool resources such as the Gold Nugget email list, which provides a summary email of the wisdom that Adam shares here today, as well as access to all of those summaries from every guest ever. And that is called the Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Adam's story, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and resilience expert, Adam Markell, inspires leaders to tap the power of resilience to meet the challenges of massive disruption for themselves and their organizations. Adam is the author of the number one Wall Street Journal, USA Today, LA Times, and publisher's weekly bestseller, Pivot, The Art and Science of Reinventing Your Career and Life. Big thanks to Adam for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Adam. Adam, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into resilience and maybe could you start us off with an inspiring story of someone who is able to build up resilience? Wow, you know, that's such a great way to begin. I think of my dad. I mean, it's the first person that just comes to mind. He's a, been a writer for most of his adult life. And like many writers or creative people, couldn't make a living at it, and ultimately did other things to earn a living. He was actually a parks department supervisor and a preschool teacher, um, and loved that work, and was basically side hustling at night doing his writing. And over the last 50 years or so that I can sort of consciously remember my dad writing and staying up late at night doing so much editing, writing is, is rewriting, as it's been said. Uh, he just was the model of perseverance. I mean, he, he just was constantly preparing himself for the next level of his development as, as a creative writer, as a fiction writer, plays and novels and poetry and all those kinds of things. Um, and he must have gotten, I mean, I've never actually counted or asked him <laughs> how many rejections along the way he's gotten, but it, it's it's got to be in the thousands, I would suppose. And uh, it's just never daunted him. 
he has been the model for me since very, very early on in my life of what perseverance looks like, what tenacity looks like. And resilience in many ways is, is about that. It's not something that's in your DNA. It's definitely something that you can learn. It can be taught to others. But yeah, my dad, my dad has been that guy for me. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'd love to get understanding then when it comes to resilience, just sort of what's the impact in terms of being awesome at your job and career of being resilient versus not so resilient? Well, I mean, it is the difference between being around to figure out what works versus not. There's no way to win a race that you don't finish. And whether it's in sports or it's in a career context or an entrepreneurial context, we really have to be around long enough to learn what doesn't work. In fact, one of the things that we, we often will work with uh, teams and uh, and individuals on is how you create clarity out of the things that have been your greatest challenges. How do you create clarity out of your biggest mistakes? And the premise of that to, to just sort of cut to the to the uh, sort of the juicy bits is that when you know what doesn't work, we find that you know what does work. When you know what you don't want, you know very clearly what you do want. So. My belief is that there's no sort of shortcut to success in anything. Not There's no shortcut to success in the arts or in any any kind of important endeavor in your life, whether it's being a parent, being, being a great spouse, being a great friend, being a great leader in business, being a great employee or a great manager or a great salesperson. It's a hard-fought, hard-won success when it when it comes and you can't get to the point where you actually experience what that is without having put the time in without having been able to endure quite a bit of pain along the way suffering along the way and many hills and valleys we're experiencing a pretty prolific change uh, time right now change that most people did not predict or anticipate and that that often is the case about change we have to be able to ride those waves of life. And ultimately, uh, when we are able to do that, we learn things. We, get, we gain clarity. We gain tremendous insight, understanding, sometimes great wisdom. And that enables us to not only learn how to do better at our jobs, but enables us to mentor and lead other people. And that is the most valuable skill there is that, that uh, any of us can attain or, or aspire to. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I'm intrigued when you mentioned that you can't finish a race or win a race that you don't finish. What does not finishing the race look like in practice for a professional? Burnout, in a word. All right, you just say, I'm done, no more working. Well, you know, so many people are, are uh, a product of, of a culture of burnout. Uh, they don't call it a burnout culture in any company. <laughs> it's just the, we have the, a burnout culture. Come join us. Come join us, right? We've got a burnout culture. Well, I guess from back in the 70s or 80s, a burnout culture would have meant something different. Uh, <laughs> and maybe that would have attracted people. But, you know, it, it's the cost of exhaustion is massive. It's, it's so many multi-billions of dollars that companies are expending needlessly because their workforce are exhausted. So the health and safety costs, the turnover costs, the toxicity, uh, meaning workplaces that are, are not performing uh, at the level that they could, they're not engaged at the level that they are capable, uh, their capacity is nearly what it could be. You know, kind of people, if you can imagine 
if you had a hundred employees and only 60 of them showed up to work at any given time, how successful could the business be? Or let's say the average of the capacity of that those that group of 100 is 60%. I mean, if 60% on a test would be, would be a, not a great grade. Um, and it's certainly not something that a company is, is consciously looking to create, uh, but unconsciously, by default, they, they exhaust their workforce and then ultimately wonder why they're, they don't have an engaged and productive team and, and why they're missing their KPIs and, and things just aren't uh, as good as they, they think they could be. Mm-hmm. Is it, well, 60% intriguing. Can you share some of the underlying science behind that figure and how it's derived? Well, when we work with teams and we work with organizations and, and test them for their resilience, on average, it comes up between 60 and, and 65%. We use a, a sort of a MEPS process where MEPS being mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual. So in those four quadrants, we look at how they're, how they're performing and what it is that they are doing on a habitual basis and whether the things they're actually doing on a habitual basis are producing more resilience or producing the opposite. So ultimately, when, when the data is analyzed across a very wide group, uh, so our data sets are quite diverse, but it's thousands and thousands of people, between somewhere between 60 and 65% is, on, is, is average. And so again, when you think of a workforce that's that's performing at that level, or if only six out of ten, or, or or seven out of ten of your employees were showing up, you, you just couldn't you couldn't perform well. It's an interesting thing for me that I I sort of back into that conversation when I'm doing a virtual keynote or I'm leading leading a group in a workshop. I'll start by telling a story from my days as a lifeguard. I was a 19, 19 years old. And I worked at a place called Jones Beach and it's the Atlantic Ocean and the rip currents are, are very, very strong. And, and there was a day in July where I heard a sound that we didn't hear very often at the beach. Uh, lifeguards communicate by whistles. So one whistle meant, you know, you were looking to get somebody's attention. Two whistles was a signal that we were making a rescue, that one of your your lifeguard colleagues was in the water probably making a rescue or just about to go in. And three whistles meant that someone was actually missing. And it was on this this day in July that I heard three whistles. And I ran down to the main stand where the captain of our field was shouting orders to our crew saying that they had lost somebody in the surf. And that we need to all get down there immediately to start a search and rescue, which we did. We ran down there. And when we got to the spot that we thought the missing swimmer was, we, we started a search pattern that we had practiced previously. And briefly what that involved was we would dive down into the water 10 feet or so deep. And this is the Atlantic Ocean in the summer. It's very cold, even, you know, two, three feet below the, the surface. Um, and, 10 feet, it's quite dark and quite cold. And so we dive down and then we would swim into the current and with our, with our arms stretched out in front of us, hoping um, that we would actually touch someone. I and mean, it's kind of a horrifying thought, but that's, that's the search process is to just try to get this person who might be uh, under the water and get them in time to be able to revive them. We did that process again and again and again and again. We did that for more than an hour 
needless to say, we were all kind of blue and shivering. And then we heard the whistles again, which was a signal for us to get out. And the search was over. And I just remember being pretty devastated. It was an awful, awful feeling in that moment that we hadn't found this person. And we ran back to our beach and the captain of our lifeguard crew led us in a moment of silence. And when we opened our eyes, he, he looked at each of us and he said some things that I will never forget. He, he said, no one goes down on our watch at this beach. No, no one goes down in our water was, was what he said. And he said, you either make the save. The expectation was that you either make the save or you die trying which is a very, very intense thing to say. And he said to us, we, we're going to have to get back up in the stand now. This has happened. And, um, and we got to get back up in the stand now. And we're going to have to get back up in the stand again tomorrow and the day after that and so on. So we need to learn something. We need to learn from what just happened. And we have to do better. And we have to make sure that we have each other's backs more than anything. We've got to have each other's backs because if we don't there's there's just no way that we could be successful and refer back to what i said at the beginning no one is going to go down on our watch ever again and so that was the intensity of that talking to and that mantra became something that we as a lifeguard crew adopted and so this was really my my first model of what resilience looked like and, um, and it's been something that, that had a huge impact on, on me. And as a footnote to that, for those seven summers that I worked at that beach, we never lost anybody again. We had a, an impeccable record. But we could be impeccable because as a crew, as a lifeguard crew, we developed resilience. And I, we didn't call it that at the time, but it's looking back at it, that's exactly what we developed. And we're able to then not perform at 60% like we were talking earlier, we performed at 100% or near to it uh, as, a, as a group, meaning collectively, we had bad days, people had bad days, people weren't always at their best. Um, but we, we were encouraged uh, by our superiors to, to be at our best and given uh, some ways in which to do that. And the record spoke for itself. Oh, great. Thank you. And to dig more into the 60%. So what's the numerator? And what's the denominator there? Well, again, it's the collection of data points from four different areas. So uh, we typically will start people off with an assessment. So for example, it's 16 questions. It takes about three minutes, but you answer four questions that are in the quadrant that has to do with your mental habits. You answer four questions about your emotional habits, the way you see the world and what you do and how you respond to things. And then the same thing for your physical habits, like the amount of sleep that you get, uh, the amount of time that you spend on technology or off technology, things of that sort. And then four questions that are, are based in the spiritual realm, which is not actually spirituality or religion, certainly. Um, it's actually alignment with values. So a, a good example of that would be um, you're a, you're a family oriented person. You want to spend time with, with your, your family, your kids or your friends or you know, others, and you work all the time. So even though you, your values would be to spend time with those people, you are acting in a contrary way. And so that sits in that category of, of spiritual because it, it's in essence a conflict within you or within a person at the level of their values. Mm -hmm. 
So then what does 100% represent? 100% would represent someone who was answering those questions and then the follow-up on on each of those different quadrants in a way that signified that they were recovering. Ultimately, resilience is about recovery. It's the opposite of exhaustion. So similar to how an athlete gets ready for, let's say, an Olympic event or professional sports, they don't run themselves ragged uh, and expect that they'll perform well. Olympic athlete, if they make the Olympics with the goal being that they win the gold medal. And the margin for error is so thin that they've got to take the best care. They've got to be in the best condition they can be in mentally, emotionally, physically, certainly. And again, uh, at a level that, uh, that we'll call spiritual so that they can on the day in question, just perform at their absolute level best versus again, in most corporate culture, uh, what they reward is kind of the night owl. They reward the billable hours. They reward your willingness to work on the weekends instead of being at your kid's soccer game. They reward all kinds of things that don't ultimately produce the highest long-term performance and longevity in their uh, valuable resources, their human resources. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so I'd love to hear. So it's all about recovery. What are the top things we can do for recovery? And are there particularly leveraged practices within each of those four domains? Like, I guess I'm thinking what gives me maximum recovery per minute I'm investing in each of these? I think it's more about what will work for an individual. There's no one activity that I would say um, is going to work for everybody. Typically, we'll lead people through a process to create a recovery map. And again, using those four quadrants, we we ask them to both think about the things that are possible for them. We brainstorm and mastermind about the, the myriad ways that you can create recovery in those four areas. So for example, taking 20 minutes to put your legs uh, up a wall, meaning you, you you lie down on your back and you scooch up to the, to the wall and just let your legs rest on the wall for hmm. 20 minutes and you cover your eyes. And 20 minutes in that position with your eyes closed and something usually covering to just sort of create a blackout uh, environment for you. And you can turn on meditation. You can turn on the Calm app, which, which I'm not pitching the Calm app, but I just love it. It's you know, so easy to do. And you set a timer for 20 minutes because it's not the kind of a nap where you've, let's say, got an hour or two hours or whatever it is to sleep in the middle of the day. But that 20 minutes of, of closed eye feet up the wall produces the equivalent of like four, for many people, the equivalent of four hours of sleep and the blood flow becomes better. Your, your blood is going towards your heart. You're taking pressure off of your, off of your legs, off of your knees, even off of your hips. And so you can emerge from 20 minutes in that position, more energized and, and, more capable of being at your best. So whereas many people, they get to the sort of the middle of the day, I mean, it hits people different times, but they get to a place where they need a nap, but they can't take one or they won't take one because they don't have a process for that or permission even. (laughs) Again, in those cultures of exhaustion, you don't really get permission to do something like that. And ultimately, long-term, when you become exhausted, when that person is exhausted, when they become burned out, what do they do? They perform less well. Um, They 
are impacting others, kind of infecting others with maybe negativity and negative attitude. So all those things are just easily impacted for the better by small, small changes. That, that's the thing that we will often tell uh, folks is that a drastic change isn't what's required. In fact, it's just creating small changes so that the recovery map that we ask them to do is to just sort of pick one thing, one thing that you could do in each of these areas. So for on the mental side, that might be that they just still their minds. You could call it meditation. I'm not, I'm not a great meditator, but I believe in stillness and I like to just sit quietly uh, for a period. I like, I'm a, a person that appreciates prayer. So I'll, I'll sometimes sit for five or 10 minutes and read something and quietly pray or just be still. And the benefits to my clarity, to the level of my attention, even to just the energy that I have after I emerge from 10 minutes of just some stillness is really profound. So that might be something that sits in the, on the mental side. On the emotional side, there are a lot of people that are not dealing with their emotions very well from the big, you know, early on in their lives, from situations and often traumas that occurred during childhood. So for somebody else, on the emotional side, it might be how it is that they let go of things and a practice of being able to consciously let go of things that are bothering you or forgiving uh, things that you that you are still holding on to, hanging on to, whether they're things from 10 minutes ago or from 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, so that, so again, it may be that someone is going to commit to that kind of a practice, that each day their new habit will be to check in with their emotions, to just sit with them even, not try to change them, not try to figure things out, not try to reconcile what they're feeling, but just feel how they feel. That's That's a simple practice. On the physical side, it could be that they're not getting enough sleep. It could be they're not drinking enough water. It could be that what they're eating is really not not the best thing, uh, the best things that they could be putting in their body. It could be simply taking a 20-minute walk, or really 20 to 30 minutes as we've come to understand it. We used to think it was 20. Now it's more like 30 minutes, brisk walk, not running, not, not sort of breaking a sweat even, but just a brisk walk for 30 minutes during the day. And the, the benefits to people with hypertension, people that are, that have anxiety. And I think a lot of us have some low levels of anxiety kind of almost all the time. Cortisol is, is kind of coursing through our bodies often these days. And some people have even greater levels of anxiety or even depression. And so walking for 30 minutes uh, a day has a massive impact on their ability to handle stressful situations. And in fact, puts their body in a, in a state of alertness, but not in a state of, of fight or flight or freeze. And again, that's a, a small, small change that they can make that creates a, a significant uh, positive impact on their ability to stay focused, to be able to work more productively. I, I personally like the Pomodoro technique, sort of 30 or 35 minutes. And then you take a, a very concerted, disciplined break for five or 10 minutes. And every 30 or 35 minutes, you, you work at this intense, uh, with this intensity, and then you take a break and often switch your focus to something else. So you, you don't try to multitask like 35 minutes and you're checking email and you're answering phone calls and you're writing, you know, some sort of a paper or something. And that's what you're doing in the course of 35, 40, 50 minutes, something like that, which is what a lot of people do. Now, instead you pick one of those things and you work at it with extreme focus, for that same 35 minute period. And then you take a complete break 
you close your eyes, you take a walk, you go have a conversation with a colleague about something entirely unrelated to that or even unrelated to work. And then when you come back, you re-engage either in that same thing because maybe you haven't finished it or as is often the case, uh, it's advisable to just switch a focus to something else. And you go through your day using these little sprints, these Pomodoro sprints, or as we used to say at the beach, we, we would be up an hour and down, or, uh, down an hour. And on the, on the last side of the spiritual side, again, it may well be that the new habit would be being home for dinner. That was my thing when I was a lawyer. I was a workaholic, like a lot of people. And, um, and I would get really productive at about four o'clock in the afternoon, four or four 30, I would hit my stride. And, and it was usually like about 10 minutes after I would tell my wife uh, on a phone call that I'd be home for dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, that was the, that was the recurring habit. And of course, you, I don't have to tell you, I hit my stride at four 30. I wasn't home for dinner. I wasn't seeing the kids at dinner. And some nights I didn't even make it home to kiss them goodnight or read them a bedtime story, which was devastating to me. I, I remember about a year ago, I delivered a TED talk where I, I talked more specifically about an anxiety attack that I, I had that was masking itself as a heart attack and ended up in the emergency room. And, and because these things were, were just troubling me so much, I was exhausted. And I was also doing work that I was not, I did not have my, my it was not my calling to do. And it was not something that I had my my heart in. And so that I, I was falling out on that spiritual side of things. It was a mm-hmm. misalignment for me and I was really feeling it. So the, the essence of this is, is making small changes. And when, when you put those all together, you create a recovery map. What you find is that people can perform longer, better in ways that, that just makes sense for them. So that's back to that whole idea of you can't win the race if you don't finish it. Ultimately is in a business, you want a team of people that that can go the distance, but not because you're driving them to to perform while they're tired, perform it, you know, when they haven't eaten and when they haven't slept and, and when their kids have important things or when there are other important things in their life that they want to participate in. Because that just is counter, it's absolutely the opposite of what will draw the best performance for the longest period of time out of the most number of people. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear emotionally how does one let go of something? It's an interesting question, Pete, because I shared this with people for a number of years that it's it's a little bit like, just to give you a physical example, if you've got something that you can grab you know, at your desk, like a pen, mm-hmm. just hold on to a pen right now. And there's always a kind of a funny question about whether the pen is holding you or you're holding the pen, right? And, and so I'll ask you that question, Pete. Are you holding the pen or is the pen holding you? I'm holding the pen. Right. So imagine that pen is something like anger at, at, a, at a parent um, for abuse or for neglect or for some other t- thing. You know, a lot of people have issues related to money. And let's say there's an anger about that. It's similar to the pen. The situation in question is not, is not holding on to the person. It's the person that's holding on to that situation holding on to that anger. I'm not dismissing the fact, and I, I purposely use something extreme because of course we hold on to lots of little things, lots of insignificant things. So to me, on the emotional side, it's a combination of two things. It's it's the, and, and by the way, Pete, just go ahead and let go of that pen now. Okay. Right, just let release, open your hand, let it fall out. I just did the same thing, right? So easy to just let go of something. That's all letting go is. 
a conscious decision to just release it the way you just release that pen. And, and there's a second piece, which not, a, you know, it's not, it's not the thing uh, that everybody's ready for, but it is the magic key as, as a, a mentor of mine um, has, has taught me over the years. Forgiveness is the magic key. Forgiveness is not about the person or the situation in question that, that might have caused anybody a particular harm. It's about you that forgiveness is for is the person who's been hurt. And that's why it's magic. There was some old study years and years ago about, about people and their anger and, and how they were able to capture the chemical reaction in a person from just a few seconds of anger. And that chemical that they were able to extract was then injected into laboratory rats. And just a few seconds of, of that chemical was enough to kill a rat. So that's what's in us. That's what's in each of us when we are holding on to feeling anger. It's just this awful chemical reaction that is certainly not helping us to be anything that we really consciously seek to be. So there's a book that I absolutely love and uh, recommend it. It's called The Presence Process. Michael Brown wrote it. Great, great book in regard to how you, you do process emotional things and ultimately you're able to integrate them. I love, I love Michael's philosophy on it because he, he doesn't believe that you need to be sort of healed of anything. Nobody's really you know, broken. Okay, great. Well, that's a favorite book. Why don't we keep rolling with your favorite things? Could we hear a favorite quote as well? I love the quote from Yogananda that said, environment is stronger than will. You want to create a high-performance workforce uh, doing great work in the world. You've got to create the environment to match that. Okay. And how about a favorite challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, I mean, the challenge to me, we've given you this assessment, this resilient leader assessment that people can take. That's a challenge. Take three minutes, 16 questions, and see how you score. See whether or not you're actually at a level that's acceptable to you. All right. Well, Adam, thanks so much for taking this time and good luck in all of your adventures. Thank you so much, Pete. It's been a pleasure. You know, I always love it when a guest shares sort of like a tip or a tactic or a something that I have just never considered doing before, but promises cool results. And this one, the thing that struck me here was the lying down and putting your legs on the wall and hanging out there for a big rejuvenation boost. And, you know, I gave it a shot and I did feel something good in terms of rejuvenation. I'd love to hear what you think. I had trouble holding it for the whole time because my left, I don't know, my hamstring or my hip or my IT band, or maybe a little bit of all of three. <laughs> it's just kind of tight and hurt a little bit when I was doing that. So I modified it. I bent it. My knees, I cheated a bit. But yeah, I was feeling some good vibes and I was surprised at how easy that was and how I'd never heard of that. So I'd love to hear how that went for you. Drop me a line, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com, and I'd love to hear your story. And again, to review the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep595. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, Chrissy Civic. If someone's ever told you to be proactive, <laughs> and you're like, okay, yes, that's a good thing, but how? Chrissy demystifies that once and for all. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. 
you can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.